Welcome to the Carrot Gal Sister Chats podcast, where we chat all about gardening and self-sufficiency. We are Jackie and Laura, two sisters who live in Utah and Idaho, and who love to talk about self-sufficiency skills. We're glad you're here. Come learn along with us. Hey, how are you today? Super good. How are you? Doing great. Awesome. What are we talking about today? Um, yeah, so I thought we'd talk about um, preserving the harvest. Like preserving. So I don't know about you. I, I live in Idaho. Jackie lives in northern Utah. And I grow a fairly big garden. And I, it's always a little bit of a trick to know how to preserve what you've grown yourself because you yes. put all this effort in to be able to make your own food and you want to be able to use it during the winter time or maybe just not let it go to waste. Right. Absolutely. So um, I thought we'd talk about different methods of preserving. We'll go into them a little bit more in detail, but this is just going to be, be an overview cool. of preserving methods that are available and why you would use certain ones. Cool. Does that sound good. Sounds great. Okay. So let's see, there's quite a few ways to preserve your food. Um, I would venture to say that the, the easiest method that a lot of people don't really do anymore or as much is called cold storage. And it's exactly what it sounds like. It's just uh, like back in the day, people had root cellars. Okay. Which is just really a room underground to be able to use the, the earth is really good at keeping a constant temperature under, under the ground. And you notice this, if you have a basement in your house or if you've been in somebody's basement, um, the basement keeps a pretty consistent temperature most of the year. Right. It's generally cold most of the year. Right. So that's actually a really good thing if you have a basement is to use your basement as a cold storage room. So cold storage is a method of preserving food that um, is not used as much anymore. We don't have cold storage rooms. We don't have root cellars like we used to, but Mm -hmm. super effective because the temperature of the earth preserves your food. So this is good for, items that store naturally in cold storage. So these would be things like all of your root vegetables and um, apples is a really good thing. So anything that grows as a root or is a long storage period food. So, um, so your roots are going to be carrots, beets, onions, potatoes. Um, If you grow parsnips or other types of root vegetables, things that grow under the ground, store naturally in a cold storage environment. Okay, good to know. Other things that store well are cabbages and um, your like apples, like I mentioned. So things that don't store well are things that you know naturally um, go bad really fast. So these would be like your fruits other other than your winter ones, right? Oh, also like winter squash squash like butternut squash spaghetti squash things like that those kinds of things right so those things store naturally in a cold environment okay anything that you want to keep dry and cold that's going to be where your where your sweet spot is and when you go to the grocery store you can see these like these are things that are just sitting out 
So you, you never see watermelons refrigerated at the grocery store. You never see them being sprayed with water. So that'll be a clue that that's a cold storage item. Your okay. Um, things like that are just sitting on a shelf, right? right? Potatoes, they're always just sitting there, right? So right. those are things that are going to store well in a cold storage room. Well, let's talk about that for just a second, right? Because like not every, since you said that that's not such a common thing anymore. Mm-hmm. I know in my, in my house at the moment, we don't have a cold storage room or anything. Um, right. And so you can get a little creative, right? If that's what you want to be using, like find that cold spot in your house, maybe a closet in your basement right. and set up a shelf, put for your sure. washes in there, put your whatever's in there, right? Like you don't have to have an actual garage. Oh, a lot of people don't have basements, but in Utah, they do. If I right. lived in a place where I had a basement, I would use my basement right. for a cold room. Right. Um, and right now I use my garage as kind of a cold storage room. So oh. um, a tri- an actual root cellar is a different situation because it's typically made with a bare floor or a rock floor. Oh and sprinkle water on to increase humidity. And it usually also has some kind of a ventilation system. But if you don't have an actual root cellar with a bare floor and a ventilation system, just use your basement and your garage. Okay. Right. Good to know. Great. Um, Other methods you can like bury a cooler outside, you know, you can like, dig a root cellar, a small one, if you want to do something like that. There's lots of variations on the thing, but for most people, basements and garages work fantastic. Cool. So um, that's one method. And I was going to mention, there's a few things that you want to keep in mind when doing cold storage. So onions put off um, gases that make other other things rot. So you're going to want to keep those kind of in a separate area. Good to know. Um, and apples you were going to want to keep away from um, yeah so keep away from other things because again they put off gases so um, yeah like I've heard like onions and potatoes like we generally cook them together but you don't want to store them together keep them separate which just means like not in the same bag or not like right next to each other. And then um, there's certain things like your carrots and your beets, they love lots of humidity. So um, I keep my carrots either out in my garage or I keep them in my fridge if I have enough room. And you wanna keep those in a plastic bag. So a grocery bag, some kind of a Ziploc, whatever. And, um, And then you sprinkle some water in. No, they like lots of moisture. So that's going to preserve your carrots. I tried. So they also say like putting them in damp sand works. Mm -hmm. But to me, that's a lot of work. Like I have to go get the sand. I have to put it in a box that's that's lined with plastic. And then I have to make sure it stays watered all winter. And you and you have to make sure they're not touching things like that. But and those boxes of sand are super heavy. I tried those a couple of times and I'm like. It's a no-go. So now I just like put my carrots in the bags. I, I leave the dirt on and everything. And I just sprinkle in a handful or two of water. Oh. Close it up. And it stays good like all winter long. That's amazing. Yeah. Super cool. So um, 
Another preserve method of preserving is canning. Mm. Um, I guess we could just, I'll just list out the methods. So cold storage, canning, fermenting, freezing, freeze drying, dehydrating. And then our last one is like overwintering or winter gardening. So, okay, next one is canning. This is a method that takes a lot of time, effort, energy, money, and um, water, right? So yes. that's the method that Jackie and I both grew up with watching our mother do, and we've both experimented with as adults. So do you want to talk about canning for a second? Sure, yeah. Um, absolutely. So canning um, is a fun process, and I don't, I'm not full-on expert at canning necessarily, but I do know that your local extension office they are, they are the people to go to for expert advice. If you're curious about what to do and how to do it appropriately, definitely check out your local extension office um, in your state. So wherever that is, they'll help to guide and navigate you with elevation changes and timings and all sorts of things. Generally speaking, there are two forms of canning. There is the water bath method, and then there's pressure canning. And you use different equipment for both of them. Um, one is a big, you've probably seen them big blue kind of speckled pot. That's the water bath one that has a lid on the top and you put a little metal thing in that keeps your jars separate. And then the other one is a big, really heavy duty industrial thick pot with a pressure lid on the top. And again, same idea that you fill up your jars and you put them in each of these, um, processing container, processing pots. And then depending on what's inside of your jar will dictate if you have to water bath it or uh, pressure can it. So that's kind of the end result. Um, And then it's really fun because the food stays good in this hydrated space for a certain amount of years. Um, Quite a while, actually, for most of things. It's on your shelf. You don't have to have electricity once it's canned. It's just like a can of food at the grocery store. Right. Exactly. So the difference between water bath canning versus pressure canning is generally the amount of acid in the food. Mm -hmm. So foods that are high acid, you can use a water bath canning method. Things that are low acid, which are generally your meats and your vegetables, are um, you have to use pressure canning or you're going to have botulism and mold and things like that. So your high acid foods are usually your fruits, and then occasionally tomato products, but even tomato products are low enough in acid that you wanna bump up the acid somehow with lemon juice, or I like to use citric acid as my my most recent um, method. And even at the store, you'll see all of your tomato products have citric acid added to them most of the time. Um, What pressure canning does is it increases the temperature that it's processed at. So water boils at 212 degrees, um, but pressure canning increases that because it introduces steam. And so the steam gets hotter mm. than 12 degrees. So if you're, if you're canning meats or low, low acid vegetables, you have to use a pressure canner so that the temperature gets up high enough. So that's why we use pressure canning. Um, yeah. Again, like you can check your extension office or the, um, even the companies that make a lot of canning products. So ball, Kerr, things like that. They're going to have really good resources on their website where you can learn about these things. 
lots of recipes. My pressure canner came with a little book booklet that shows me the process for just about anything. So that's what I use as my go-to resource. And I just take little notes in there. Cool. Yeah. yeah good. So then um, with canning, obviously just depend, follow recipes, follow, you know, figure out what you're doing, but there's so many options and what you can, can, that sounds funny, right? Can't get, <laughs> um, I've, I've played around a lot more with fruits at this stage in my, in my growing and my development as, as, um, learning how to preserve my food. Yeah. Um, I recommend starting with fruits because number one, they're the safest and yep. number two, you can water bath them. So yep. if you have a big stock pot, start with that. Exactly. You don't have to go buy equipment. You'll exactly. probably need to buy some canning jars right? and some lids, but that's all you need. Right. One thing that I find is super helpful for me is um, a tool that you get your jars out of the water with. That um, it's like a it's like a grabber, so it's like a clamp for your. So, but any store is going to have those in the canning section. So look for one of those like grabbing tools. Yeah. It's called a jar lifter or something like that. Yep, those are my favorites. Yeah. They're like little tongs for your jars. Tongs <laughs> for your jars. It fits around your jar, and you. You can just reach in and grab it and lift it straight up. So that's what I highly recommend. But if you just use a big pot that you have, you're going to want to put something on the, on the bottom of it. Anyway, yeah. we'll go into more detail on canning later. But Absolutely. Super yeah. fun. Okay, next topic is fermenting. This is, is becoming kind of a, a buzzword, like a lot of people are getting into fermenting. And it's fun. Again, you don't need a lot of equipment for it. And you can just start practicing with it. Um, all of these skills take practice and, and experience, but they're not hard, right? So canning and fermenting, we have to learn to be safe with them because they can both introduce molds and things like that. So, but as you get more familiar with it, you can be super confident. So Jackie, do you wanna talk about fermenting? Absolutely. Yes. Um, so fermenting is a really fun thing to do. So basically the nutshell um, understanding of fermenting is we take usually some sort of vegetables. You can also ferment fruit. Generally fruit has a lot of sugar in it. And so the sugars in the fruit as they ferment actually generally turn into more of an alcoholic kind of a thing it actually helps to enhance an alcoholic beverage and things like that. But um, so I generally stay away from fruits in general in my life. I just haven't messed around with that, mm -hmm. but I know Lara told me recently that she's made apple cider vinegar. So it's, it's a vinegaring, which vinegar is, is a fermented product. And she takes fruit like apples from that and turns it into vinegar. So, so that's, that's an interesting thing because like, um, so foods go through a fermenting process followed by a vinegar process. So if you leave your alcohol out on the counter, it's going to turn into vinegar. So, yeah. So the process that it goes through is it goes fermented first and then it turns to vinegar. Very cool. Very yeah. cool. Bacteria is in there. Right. 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 So um, I, like I said, I, I not normally just play around with vegetables that I ferment. Um, we don't, I've never heard of anybody fermenting any sort of fats, or I guess you can meats do go through kind of a, a 
I don't know if it's fermenting technically, but curing is I think the word that we use generally for meats, right. which I think, I don't know if we need to add that to our list lawyer, but like, I'm not an expert on curing, but maybe we'll learn about that and come talk about curing meats later. But um, for this discussion, we're going to stick to vegetables primarily. You can ferment grains um, as well. That's a really good thing to do, but um, we're just going to primarily stick to vegetables today. So in a nutshell, what you do is you take some, some sort of a vegetable and there's different types of vegetables. You can ferment um, beets, carrots, cabbage. Um, what else have we fermented? I don't know. Those are some of the things that are popping into my mind at the moment, but um, you, you, you generally, you cut them up into a certain, certain size. Every type of ferment is a little bit different in how you're supposed to cut and prepare your foods. Um, like I'm just going to talk about sauerkraut, for example, or cabbage, turning cabbage into sauerkraut, which is the fermented version of cabbage. So, so that we have an example to follow. So we take a head of cabbage. I usually pull off the outer leaves because they're usually kind of the damaged, more yucky sides of the, of the leaves. I actually keep the leaves mm-hmm. because it helps me to, once I've put everything into my jar to ferment, I put those exterior leaves on the top to help submerge everything underneath the liquid. So that's kind of a cool tip that I've learned from somebody in a ferment in a sauerkraut making class a while ago. Mm-hmm. Um, so then I just actually shred all my sauerkraut or I'll, I keep saying sauerkraut, all my cabbage leaves into little finely sliced pieces. I use like a microplaner thing, a shredder thing that helps to make that hap- e- go easier. You can use um, a knife. So that would use a food processor, whatever works for you. There's no right or wrong way to do it. The bigger the cabbage slices, specifically with cat with sauerkraut, um, the less consistently things are going to ferment. So it's better to have not tiny little pieces, but I have heard of somebody like juicing their sour, their cabbage and then like fermenting it. And it kind of, it turns out the same because the science is the same, no matter how big or small, really the pieces are, but generally we like to cut them into finely slices. Yeah. Like, uh, yeah. Shreds. Shreds. Like for a, like for a cabbage salad, that that's what we're looking for. So once you get all shredded, um, there's a certain ratio for how much cabbage you have to how much salt that you need to add. Mm-hmm. Salt is the medium that helps to actually um, preserve the food through the fermenting process. Right. So then what happens is we add the salt. The salt actually starts removing all the liquid from those cabbage leaves, and there's all this juice that starts emerging from the cabbage Mm -hmm. Um, it's like a salty liquid at the beginning because it's salt salt cabbage water basically yeah and then from there I just I depending on how much cabbage you have you I use like a quart size jar or I actually have half gallon mason jars that Mm -hmm. I use and I usually do a whole head of head or two of cabbage to fill up a whole entire half gallon right Um, and then it's amazing how much juice comes out and I just keep shoving it in until it fills I mean, I leave about this much space at the top. You can have more space than that. And that's fine. Just don't fill it all the way to the top because the juice will actually spill out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Big, big mess. And then I have a special fermenting lid that I put on that um, it doesn't keep air out. It doesn't trap air in. It's not a canning process and it's not like, oh no, the air is bad for this thing. It needs some air. Mm-hmm. But what these special fermenting tops do, these lids do, there's lots of varieties on there. You can search for things on Amazon, but um, it helps to just regulate the amount of air that gets in because you need some air. You don't want a lot of air. And so I know that you can ferment things if you just use the regular lid that comes with your mason jars. 
um, I have better success with well, like a special fermenting lint because yeah. it just helps. Yeah, regular. we can talk really about easy. that later. We'll go into more depth on fermenting on a different class. Right. Yeah. And then you just let it sit there for a couple of weeks on the counter at room temperature until it gets to the point that you want. You keep tasting it until it gets fermented to the point that you're like, oh, this tastes fantastic. And, um, yep. and freshly made um, sauerkraut is amazing. Amazing. So good. It's really good for your um, digestive system has lots of um, good bacteria for you. Yep. But um, one thing that I didn't mention really quick is just that um, the firm, what happens, the transformation that happens from like a raw vegetable to the fermented thing is we're actually utilizing there's natural yeast and back yeast and bacteria that are in the air and also on the, the vegetable itself right. that actually start breaking down that food. And it sounds really funny and gross, but I love to describe this to people because then it makes sense. It's like those bacteria and those yeast actually start eating um, certain things that are in that plant and then they digest it. Yeah, they digest <laughs> it. And we're actually like their, their stuff is actually really good for our guts and our bellies. And that's what turns it into this fermented superpower food that we need to be getting into our diets more often. So that's the science behind it. And it's a really fun process. And again, we'll, we'll go into more detail on fermenting in a different one, but um, okay. We'll keep moving on. Another method of preserving that you might want to utilize is freezing. So this is a method that takes a lot of storage space and you're going to have to have a freezer. You can use just the freezer in your, um, in your, that's attached to your refrigerator, but you're going to be able to preserve just small amounts of food that way. Um, getting a large outside freezer of sorts would be better if you're going to freeze a lot of food. So um, most things that you're going to freeze, you are likely Fruits, not so much. Berries, not so much. You can just put those straight into the freezer. Um, I usually put them out on a cookie tray to freeze individually. And then I, once they're frozen, then I put them into a Ziploc bag, label it, and then pop it back into the freezer. But um, vegetables, you're going to want to do a process. Is it called shocking or? Um, I think so, or blanching. Blanching. Thank you. Yeah. So, and that, all that means is you're going to cook them for one minute or so. Like boiling hot water. Yeah. Get some boiling water. You drop. So say that you're doing green beans or peas, you're going to want to drop them into boiling water for one minute and then put them into an ice water bath quickly to stop the cooking process. And all that does is it breaks down an enzyme that's in the food that's going to make it get soft and mushy. Is that kind of what it does? The blanching? Yeah, actually, no. I don't know either. I just know vegetables you're supposed to blanch before you freeze. Yeah, um, absolutely. absolutely. So. Um, and obviously when you're blanching them, like prepare them, like cut the green beans in the way that you want them to be stored and free mm -hmm. of and same with the peas, like take them out of their pea pods and things like that. So just sugar snap peas, like edible pods, right? Then you can, right. yeah, sure. Absolutely. So like, I know a lot of people that freeze broccoli, I freeze my zucchini. I actually don't blanch mine. I just shred it up and stick it straight in. It's fine. Um, one thing that I like to freeze is whole tomatoes. And this is something that a lot of people don't know about. When I have too many tomatoes coming out of my garden, 
and I'm overwhelmed with them, I just take the whole tomatoes, make sure they're clean. And then I pop them straight into a freezer bag, stick them in the freezer. And the beauty of that, number one, it quickly gets rid of a whole bunch of tomatoes off my kitchen counter. And when I go to thaw them in the wintertime, the skins come right off and I can create a beautiful sauce, cook it down. And it's awesome. It's like my favorite way to preserve tomatoes because I don't have to do anything. It's so easy, right? So that's so funny because this summer for the first time in my life, I was because I was in that same problem. And I'm like, oh, what do I do with all these tomatoes? I just popped them in some freezer bags and threw them in my my freezer. And it's been so lovely. I didn't, I took the skins off before. So I took one step extra, but I was already blanching them all and taking the skins off. But that's so, it's been such a fun thing to just pull them out of my freezer and have like real raw, fresh tomatoes from my freezer. They're going to be super mushy and watery. You can use them in cooked products. Soups and yeah, absolutely. Nice to use them in the winter time. So great. So great. Cool. Okay. Next method is freeze drying. This is a method that I have zero experience with, but Jackie has tried it. So go ahead. (laughs) So fun. Freeze drying um, is, it's kind of a, it's, it's not a common thing. I don't think you can buy freeze dried foods, foods at the store. Um, They have like backpacking meals that are freeze dried and those MRE things that the military gives to their people. They're all freeze dried fruits, foods. And so really what it is, I don't know the science behind it, but I was experimenting with it this summer. Um, freeze dryer machines are, they're a little pricey. They're in between the two and $3,000 range. Mm-hmm. Yep. You can have your own home freeze dryer machine. I just luckily have a friend that has one that's letting me use it. So I've been playing around with that and that's been really fun. I have to go to her house because it's not some, it has this all special setup and everything. Um, but basically what it does is it goes through this really intense chemical change through the freeze dryer process and the machine knows how to do all this stuff, but in a nutshell, you prepare all your food. So as Lyra, like you can, you can almost, almost freeze dry anything like greens, fats, meats, whole entire meals, fruits, vegetables, all sorts of things. You can freeze dry almost anything. Um, and then you actually can reconstitute it afterwards. And it's not the same as like a dehydrated food where a dehydrated product, we'll talk about that in a second, but dehydrated product like reduces, removes all of the liquid and it like shrinks the food way down into this like pancakey experience, right? Uh Um, Like a raisin is a dehydrated grape, right? A prune is a dehydrated plum. So it just removes all the liquid. Freeze drying, um, I should probably, I don't know. I have some freeze dried stuff in the other room, but actually can, it maintains its whole entire structure. Actually I have some grapes here really quick. Let me show you. So froze dried, freeze dried. You won't be able to see this, but that's okay. Right. So I just cut the grapes in half and this is, so this is half of a grape, mm-hmm. but it maintains the whole entire structure of the grape, mm-hmm. but it's really dry, crumbly, Right. And, you know, people have experienced this, this, if you've ever had a cereal with freeze-dried strawberries in it or something like that, right? So it still looks the same size as a strawberry. Exactly. Just going to be the, it crumbles, right? It's dried. Yep. Yep. And what it does is it, the freeze, why it's called a freeze dryer is because it actually takes the food weight to this really, really frozen cold temperature, like negative 40 below or something. I don't know. And then as it 
slowly brings it back up to temperature. It starts changing the, it removes all the water. It does a bunch of different things to the food so that as it brings it back up to a normal temperature from that really frozen space, then it, Mm -hmm. um, it keeps it in this, in this really crumbly space that I could add water to these grapes and turn them back into grapes if I chose to, but they make really great snacks, things. And the cool thing with freeze dried food is it actually lasts for like 20 to 25 ish years or something. Yeah. Depending on what it is. So super fun. If you have a friend or if you want to spend two to $3,000 on a freeze dried machine, it's a really great, great thing to do. So, <laughs> all right. If you don't want to spend two to $3,000, we'll talk about dehydrating food next. <laughs> Right. It's a little bit more accessible for most people to do free to do drying. But um storing dehydrate storing freeze-dried foods might be a good method if you just want to buy freeze-dried foods. Yes. Long-term storage, that might be a good thing. Yes, absolutely. Um dehydrating, as she said, is different. So this would be just drying out foods. So um you can just use so there's I would say there's probably three methods of dehydrating. So air dehydrating mm-hmm. would be just where you're setting it outside or on your kitchen counter. Some things don't dehydrate fast enough in that method, but this you could certainly dehydrate herbs just using the air. Um, probably not a lot of foods that way. Most, most foods you're going to want to dehydrate using either your oven or a dehydrator. So mm-hmm. Ovens, if you're going to use your oven, you're going to want to turn it down to a low temperature, um, as low as it'll go, really. Like, I, mine goes down to 170, so that's usually what I dehydrate at. And you lay it out on trays in a single layer, spread out, and then you leave it in there until it dehydrates down to the point that you want it to be at. So examples of this are, like, dried fruits. So you might see some dehydrated apples or apricots or peaches or something like that. Or fruit leathers. Fruit leathers. Absolutely. Fruit leathers um, are a dehydrated product. Um, Or sun-dried tomatoes is another one that a lot of people are very familiar with, right? So you can use your oven for all of those. Um, Or if you want to invest a little bit of money, you can get a dehydrator. They're around probably $100. Yep. That's probably a good average. And it's awesome. So it's just an electric machine that you sit on your counter and it has trays that you can stick them in. And so you lay out your food on the tray and then it has airflow through it that dehydrates it at a more consistent temperature. And, um, and you're also not using your oven. Yeah. So um, I like to use my dehydrator like overnight. So I just put my food in, let it dehydrate all night. And then it's usually done by the morning. It's a quick way to take care of a lot of fruit. If you have fruit coming off your property or a neighbor or things that you've purchased. Um, Yeah. Things like that. Isn't jerky a dehydrated product? Yeah. Beef jerky. Any kind of jerkies are dehydrated. Mm -hmm. I know you can dehydrate vegetables. Like you said, I mean, tomatoes technically a fruit, right? But like you can dehydrate vegetables and things. One tiny little detail to be considerate of with the dehydration process is if you are really, really intentional about wanting to keep your food in a raw form, meaning like I think raw technically 
has to be below 110 degrees, like you preserve it under 110 degrees, Mm -hmm. then you definitely want to be using a dehydrator machine and not your oven. Because like I said, Laura said, my oven also the lowest temperature is 170, which is above that raw space. So if that's really important to you, make sure you're dehydrating your food in. And look for a dehydrator that'll go down to those raw temperatures. Yeah. It takes longer, but it works great. So yeah, absolutely. Cool. Yeah. Dehydrating is really easy. It's simple. Um, not too hard to do. And again, it takes care of a lot of produce at one time, right? Yep. Um, okay. Last one that we're going to talk about, we talked about in a separate video and podcast um, is um, winter gardening or overwintering. So just real quick to cap recap that topic. Winter gardening is just a way to preserve your food outdoors in your garden attached to the earth. So the trick to that is to make sure your plants are full grown by the time you get to your freezing temperatures. Um, And then you're basically just protecting them from the elements and they will preserve over the winter and you just keep harvesting all winter long. So um, certain foods can do great with just a simple cold frame or a hoop house over the top of them just to provide a little bit of protection from the elements because the thing that will kill your plants the fastest is um, um, wind really and then um, certain plants can overwinter with no protection so I have a patch of green onions that has overwintered every year for as long as I have lived here. And I had a different one. I had a same one, uh, sorry, a similar one at my old house and it overwintered every year. So super cool about that. Like I can just keep harvesting them until the plant dies back. And then as soon as the temperatures come up in the spring and the days get longer, it starts growing. So I only really only have like two months that I don't have any green onions at all in my, in my garden. So 10 months out of the year, I can go out and harvest like 10 feet from your door. Time I want. Yeah. That's amazing. Other things like in that same category. So winter gardening and overwintering, you're going to have to use foods that are acclimated to winter time, meaning your cold foods, like your, um, uh, like spinaches and kale and onions and, peas and things like that, things that grow naturally in the cold time of the, of the season. Um, you're not going to be able to overwinter tomatoes and cucumbers and peppers and melons, right? So those are hot plants. Um, so yeah, so overwintering or winter gardening is another method that you can use to preserve food. And the great thing about that takes very little, um, equipment and you don't have to use your, any of your indoor space. It just overwinters outside. So that's nice so to be cool. outdoor space for that. Such a cool thing, right? Because like we've talked about a lot of different options. And when you talk about freezing foods, like it does take a lot of space in your freezer, right? Right. Freeze-dried foods. I think, well, I sh- like I have a tiny a quart jar that used to be full of grapes, but we've eaten most of them. Um, right freeze-dried foods take up a lot of space too because you have to put them in a container to keep them and you have to use oxygen absorbers and all these things right like dehydrated food shrinks down significantly but it still takes room 
Yeah. So, I mean, maybe we'll talk for just a minute before we wrap up on like how you choose the method of preservation, right? Yeah, that's a great idea. How would you choose between all of these methods? Let's say that you had a batch of, or some, one of your neighbors had an apple tree and they said, come pick these apples. You're like, great. I have three boxes of apples. What do I do with these? Right. 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 Usually if I get a whole bunch of food like that at once, I like to use multiple methods of preserving. I do too. Because then I have lots of different options, different forms of the food, which is nice. And it also, like if you were going to take those apples and only can them, right, into applesauce or apple butter or apple pie filling, whatever you're making, right? Um, If you were only using canning, it was it would take a lot of time, a lot of effort, a lot of jars, all those kinds of things. But if you put some in cold storage and you can some and you dehydrate some and you turn some into um, apple leather and you dehydrate, oh, I said dehydrate already. If you freeze dry some, right? If you, anyway, you turn some into apple cider vinegar. So nice, you can use different parts of the plant for, like you can take your scraps from making the apple yes. sauce and turn it into apple cider vinegar, things like that. Right. So anyway, just, it's nice to have multiple variations on, on the food and also not use all your resources. Yeah. In one method. Absolutely. The other thing that I think is really important as um, if you guys are similar to us, you're, you're thinking about how do I provide for my family, not necessarily provide, but like, how do I plan the food that we need for the whole year or a certain amount of time or whatever, until we get to next season to next harvest. Um, And it's really important to understand that obviously the needs of your guys's family, if you have a large family, you're going to need a lot more of a certain type of thing. Or if your kids, or if you guys hate applesauce, don't turn the thing, don't turn the apples into applesauce. Like that's a, that's not wise. Or if you know Christmas is coming up and you love giving jams or things like that, you can make apple jam, apple butter, all sorts of things, give them for gifts, right? So like, I think what I, this idea is like, start with the end in mind, right? It's like, Mm -hmm. what are the needs of your family? What are your unique things that you love or don't love? Mm -hmm. Um, What do you want to experience? What do you want to experiment with? What do you want to try? Is there something new? Do you have, like, like I said, do you have a friend with a freeze dryer machine that will let you use it? Do you have access to those things? Do you know how to water bath and can your food or you just need to throw them in cold storage and figure out how to do like make a ton of apple pie with them? I don't know. So, and you get to make all those cool decisions for you, but understanding the end in mind is a really important thing. Knowing you'll learn over time what you and your family like to eat. Yes. Right. Like, so my friend just gave us a few boxes of peaches. Mm -hmm so grateful for them. But like, I know that my family loves canned peaches, right? canned peaches. So that's what I did with the majority of them. Um, We don't love peach jam as much. So for me, that's what worked for me. Exactly. But for other people, they love dehydrated peaches. So you would do the majority of them dehydrated peaches, right? So Mm -hmm. You just have to learn over time and try out these different methods of preserving with different types of food and decide what you and your family like to eat. Yep, exactly. So much fun. So much fun. So many cool things for us to talk about, but um, 
wanted to keep this short as short as we could with talking about all these really great um, options for you guys. Let us know. We'd love hearing in the comments and the chat um, about different options that you guys are utilizing. Um, we obviously did not talk about things in depth today. We're just talking about different methods. And so if you have a different preserving method that we didn't talk about, let us know. We'll happily come back and do another episode for you. We'll learn about it, um, ask questions about it, but we'd love to know if there's other things that we missed. Um, share your experiences with us. We'd love to learn from you guys just as much as you guys learning from us. So thank you for joining us today. And we, um, we like to have a conversation over in our Facebook group too. So you can join us over there. We'll post a link to that, how you can join us there and continue this conversation. And we'll most likely do a deeper dive on some of these topics too. So, so we For can sure. into more detail on, on how to do each of these methods. So, okay. Mm-hmm. It's great to be with you guys. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Carrot Gal Sister Chats podcast. We invite you to join us in our private Facebook group to continue the conversation. You can find the group by clicking on the link in the show notes or by visiting carrotgal.com chats. We love to answer questions and see pictures of your gardens and other self-sufficiency projects that you're working on. Come join us in the group. Thanks for listening.